1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can't, I'm sorry, I messed that up. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak. We have read your word. We have heard you speak thus far. We ask now that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. May we hear from heaven. May our consciences be pricked where they need to be pricked. May we be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. May we believe where we currently have unbelief. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. What is love? Yes, I did just put that in your mind. For those of you of the right age to know that song, you can hate me forever for it because you will have that brain worm in your mind for the next several days, I'm sure. Now, all seriousness, what, what is a love is a question that's actually really important, but it's one of those questions that doesn't get asked very often. And it certainly doesn't get asked at a kind of a national level where a nation begins to wrestle with that that answer, that question, what actually is love? It's a word we talk about all the time. 
We use it all the time, but we never really define it and certainly define it well. It's a question that right now in the UK is being asked, particularly in Liverpool. If you've been following the news this week, the story of Alfie Evans, you've watched a city and a nation that's having to ask that question. What is actual love? For those of you that don't know the story, it's the story of a 23-month-old, just under two-year-old young boy who was diagnosed with a very bad disease, taken into the hospital. They figured out that it would be terminal. He was on a respirator, and so the doctors decided that it was time to take him off the respirator. And so they would take the oxygen away, and this boy would die. It's a brutal, brutal story of this young, adorable, precious little child. And so they turned the, the respirator off, and the parents waited with the doctors for their child to, to die. And he didn't. Miraculously, he, he didn't actually die. And so the parents are like, great! Like, this is fantastic! Our, our child is alive! It's fantastic! Quick, go get the oxygen! And the doctors say, no, we can't. We've made the decision to turn off his support. He's done. He had a good run. It's over. The parents freak out. They're like, no, we need to go get oxygen. Ah." It hits national news media, Italy volunteers to actually bring him over, pay for treatment. The British government's like, we can't do that. It ends up so bad. Again, I'm a Liverpool soccer fan. and get to see all of my Liverpool media end up with like SWAT teams surrounding the hospital because they know that people are going to try to break in to try to take the kid to take him away where he could probably get treatment. It gets so bad, actually, that the doctors have to turn off his water and food. He died yesterday of uh, complications, really from starvation, really, honestly, as his body shut down. And it's, been, it's forced kind of into Liverpool's conversation as a city and into the UK as a whole, this, this kind of national court. What, it, what actually is love? Because you have parents that love this child desperately that the doctors say, look, what they're doing is not loving because they're prolonging a life that can't be sustained. And you have parents that are saying to the doctors, I don't care. It's my child. Any day is a day that's worth having. I don't care if he's not awake. He's my child. I love him with all my heart. Give me one more day. One more day is worth it. And I don't care if the state doesn't pay for it. We've got tons of people that will pay for it out of their own pockets. One more day. And you have parents that are saying it's not loving to have my child die this way. And you have a hospital that's saying it's not loving to try to prolong this life. And you have this massive sort of question stewing and boiling in a community going, what what actually is love? And the song that's still burning in your brain is actually not a very good answer, just for the record. You see, John has been building in this book this kind of big picture argument for the nature of Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's not just a good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's a, that's a terrible miss. But what does it mean to be a Christian? He's been arguing kind of along the way that it means you've been transformed in nature. That you've been made new from the inside out. 
That as God has come into you, He's transformed your heart, He's transformed your will, He's transformed your mind, and everything is different from the inside out. Ezekiel kind of built on that. That heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in. But now, John is going to take that, that nature change and build with a command. And this entire section actually is really a one-point sermon, but I'm not going to preach it that way. As, well, you might guess you're not going to get off that easy. The whole point is verse 7, that first kind of clause. Remember, Grandpa Johnny's an old man. Beloved children, all those that are the saints of God, one simple command. Let us love one another. Let us be loving toward one another. Let us interact with love, flavoring our conversation. Let us be creatures of love. And you would go, all right, I I dig it. I'm fine with that. That's, that's, That's cool. I mean, basically that is in so many ways what all of music has been arguing for the last, say, forever since we've had music. We need to be loving creatures. Turn on the radio station. All about love. We need to define the term. What, is, what does love actually mean? Is it, does it mean turning off the respirator and the food and water? Does it mean give me one more day uh, in their midst? Does it, what does it actually mean? And so John gives clarification. He's not answering specifically our question, but he does give clarification that follows. First point kind of thing, principle to see, fix in your mind. The knowledge of God produces love because God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Why should we love one another? What does that mean? Well, because love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He's describing that nature change, that relationship change, that whereas you used to be lost in darkness, lost in yourself, lost in a world of, of sorrow and sadness, of despair and hopelessness, as you come to know the Lord, you're brought into Him, you're brought into that new nature, God fills you and love exudes from you. The knowledge of God produces love because God is love. You can go so far as to say that anyone who does not love, verse um, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And friends, this is a, a key point to understand when we want to look at what it means to love. Because John's making a key distinction in the definition here. God is love. God's not loving. He's not showing an attribute that exists outside of himself. When I do things, I exhibit attributes that are outside of me. They're not necessarily intrinsic to who I am. They don't define me. Uh, They are characteristics that exist outside of me. And you all understand that. Because there's a very real possibility that in about an hour or so, some of us will feel rather gluttonous because we have eaten too much in the meal. But we understand that the idea of gluttony is not something that exists inside our own nature. 
Gluttony is a, an idea that exists in part of God's law, and every nature, every culture in the world has an understanding of it. And I may be modeling it for a season or an extended season, but it doesn't exist solely in me. However, God's character does not work that way. His attributes exist in Him first and then flow out. So that when it comes time to think about what is love, you have to first and foremost look at God because he's the one who defines it. He is love. It is God. He is the one who sets the terms of the deal. And it's intriguing. This is such an important point because of even the way our culture speaks about love and speaks about God. You know, as a preacher, I get to have all these kinds of conversations when I'm around talking with people and such. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I believe in a God of love and I believe he wouldn't do whatever it is. And just plug in X, right? Use algebra terms. But it's interesting because what are they doing? They're saying, look, I have an understanding of love and I do not believe a God could fit my understanding Uh, My my definition is coming out of my mind. It's coming out of my heart. It's coming out of me. I'm the standard. I'm the one who's setting the definition. I'm the one who's controlling the terms of the deal. Well, I I just don't believe a God of love could do this. Or maybe you don't frame it in terms of God. I I don't believe a loving person could do this. I don't believe love could look this way. It's intriguing the way that John frames it is actually a bit different. (laughs) It doesn't really matter what you think about love. His name is God. His name is Jesus. His name is the Spirit. He is the one who sets the terms of what love looks like. You want to know what love is? Look at his character. You want to know what love looks like? Look at his actions. You want to know what love feels like? Look at how he interacts with the feelings of his people. God is the one who defines love. And as we come to know him, as we come to relate to him, as we come to be filled with him, we will be loving accordingly. But our, our definition of love is only as accurate as it fits his character. See, this is a key point that our current culture is missing. That love is defined by God's character and not by our feelings or the character of the world. I could tell you a story. I will hint at it instead of the first rock and roll concert that I ever went to. My dad took me. Um, he actually used a cell phone to call my mom in the middle of it and just screamed at her, you owe me big, because the music was so loud and so bad. Uh, it was a band uh, that has a uh, rock and roll band, a uh, famous guitarist with multiple lead singers that varied through. But one of the gentlemen was famous for uh, a song kind of answering the question, what is love? And it's intriguing because his answer, one of those great teenage ballads that's you know, played on the radio all of the time, uh, and his answer was uh, for girlfriends to uh, commit themselves to premarital activity that they shouldn't. And you're like, wow, that's the definition you're going for. Overrealized sexuality. That's the answer of what you want love to be like. 
Well, why not? That's what he wants. That's what he desires because it's not flowing out of the character of God. The knowledge of God produces love because God himself is love. Secondly, we see it's interesting. God's love is not a loving concept. It's not in the abstract. It's a love in reality. A love in action. A love inside uh, the world in which we live. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation payment uh, for our sins. God is love and his love is such that it has expression. It has action coupled with it. It's not just something that exists out in the ether that he, he talks about in concept form, in abstract form, but then never actually does anything about. For some of us, this maybe that still... I love reading. When was the last time you read a book? I have to actually wonder if you actually like reading, if you kind of refuse to do it. I got to wonder. I I have to wonder. I love the Bible. Great. Me too. Do you read it? I do do have to wonder. You have to ask the question. Because God here is saying, look, we have in us, in God, we have a perfect picture of what love looks like. And what does his love look like? It looks like, and John walks through very quickly, the plan of redemption. That prior to creation, the Godhead said, Father, Son, and Spirit, you know what? We're going to arrive at creation. We're going to make creation. And part of that creation is going to be the plan of salvation. And we're going to create creatures. And we're going to give those creatures free will. We're going to give them perfect nature. But as part of God's perfectly ordained plan, those creatures will fall. They will sin and they will sin. And the pollution will be so grievous, so heinous that they will not be able to save themselves. And so God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he sent his son. He didn't have to. Christ didn't deserve it. The father sends the son to step inside time and space to put on humanity. Think about the significance of that. The second person of the Trinity exists outside of time and space. He's never been inside time ever. And so when he steps inside humanity, he steps inside a womb to be contained in time and in space for the first time ever. Can you imagine that? The infinite eternal God stepping inside one point of space and it's inside a womb. Being born, living a poor traveling teacher's life, the Messiah, until being murdered unjustly, remaining under the power of death for a time, being raised and ascending into glory. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. Or John's version, not Paul's. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. The propitiation. 
God's love is not something done in the abstract. It's not something done out again in the ether where it never kind of has boots on the ground. No, instead his love is an active love. It's a redeeming love. And honestly, to stop the sermon there, I mean, that's fantastic news. John doesn't, though. He continues on and uh, kind of condensing for uh, argument's sake the, the final paragraph here. God's love is a beneficial love. You see, he, his character is love. He comes into us and produces love in the saints. And the love that he's going to produce is not a love in abstract. It's a love uh, that's concrete, that's real, that's grounded, that's true. But it benefits those that are the recipients of God's love and those that are the givers of God's love. It's intriguing that God's love is, is so overwhelming and so beautiful and so powerful and so wonderful that even as we're wrapped up in it, it just blesses us and it blesses others as we share it. Thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us. Because he's given us his spirit. (laughs) Oh, this is how loving God is that, again, not only has the second person of the Trinity stepped inside time and space in being incarnate in a fashion. uh, Now the third person of the Trinity has stepped inside time and space in, in a different sort of way and not become incarnate by putting on humanity, but become inside you. So as you go about your daily life, you have God's Spirit residing in you. It's my only hope in preaching. It's not that I'm a good preacher. It's not that I'm great explaining stuff. Sometimes really terrible at that. But you have the Holy God living within your heart. He knows you from the inside out. He's taking the Word of God even now and applying it from your insides. He loves you intimately because He resides in you. Fourteen, fifteen. It builds a confession of faith. Our faith grows that we know who Jesus is. We don't live in a world of mystery. We don't live in a world uh, that is uh, existing in unknown concept of truth. You think about how many people today, not only can they not answer what is love, maybe best answer there is whatever you can give me or I can take from you, but can't answer the question, what is truth? Where do you find ultimate truth? God's love is such that as he comes in and works inside the heart of a believer, they come to know the real and actual answers in the world around them. 16, whoever lives in God's love has God himself live within them. 17, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Again, think about how many people live in the world today afraid of being exposed and found out in the end. Again, this season of American culture is the most intriguing as watching man after man after man after man, pastor after pastor after pastor be exposed. Again, how wonderful to be able to live in such a way that to know when, when, when the end comes and I stand before the judgment seat of God and every action I've ever done is shown forth to be able to say I have complete and utter confidence not because I have done righteous because we all know that's not true but because Christ is 
And I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear in that last day when all of my deeds are written large before all of humanity, before God himself. I don't need to fear man and I don't need to fear God because God has loved his people so much. He has given them eternal security before them, before him. Not only is this day of judgment uh, changed in relationship, a day of confidence, a day of, of joy, a day of longing. We don't have to be afraid of death, what ushers us into that. 18, it removes fear from love. And here in the Bible, fear is used oftentimes in one of two separate kind of terms. One is the idea of being afraid of. The other is uh, to have a healthy respect for. Um, I am afraid of snakes. I have a healthy respect of black widows. I don't care about spiders. I'll step on them all day long. Snakes freak me out. Okay? He's making that distinction. Look, no longer, we, we have healthy respect for God, but our relationship with him is not marked by one of abject terror. And again, think about the, the life of the unbeliever is such where their life is marked by terror. The idea of God haunts them. Because it's not one of love for them. We may have fear taken away. And this love is then worked out in the brothers and sisters. If we have God, we will be a loving people. And sermons like this in many ways are the great joy to preach. uh, Because this is a body I think that does this tremendously well. At least I know you've shown that toward me and my family. I think you show it towards each other all the time. I hear it in new member interviews constantly. So trying to figure out how to kind of maybe make a couple of points for us to think about as we go home would is always a challenge on sermons like this. And I would maybe make a couple of just a bit more pointed ones than normal. One is to be sure that we do not miss that kind of middle point. That God's love is not love in the abstract, and neither should ours be. And by that I mean specifically, may it never be that we're a body that talks about loving each other, but then never actually does it. I mean, that's a really easy thing to do, isn't it? I mean, for those of you that are uh, married, for longer, you understand this. I mean, when you first get married, it's really like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. And there's a point where right after the honeymoon where it's like, they're like, hey, can you get up out of, you know, and go get me a glass of water? You can get your own water. Thank you. <laughs> but I thought you said you love me. I do. You can get your own water. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it's something for us to think about as a body to make sure that we don't accidentally slip into that idea of saying, saying love but never serving in love. Saying that we love one another and maybe not serving one another. Uh, you know, the standard kind of thing that exists in church, y'all may not know this, it certainly we talk about in leadership a lot, the 80-20 rule. The traditional church has 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 20% of the people shoulder the burden of 80% of the labor. And so much of that, honestly, is because the church talks about love in concept and not in theory. Secondly, some of us in this room are certainly those of much more tender spirit and disposition. And we grow discouraged and we grow weary and we grow sad and we grow despondent so easily. This is the solution to that. 
to know that God is love and he loves his people. Dark times, good times, trials and difficulties, joys and treasures. He loves his people and that love is not in the abstract. Even the pain that he has given is given for your good and for his glory. And then lastly, on a really fun and happy note, is to think about this in the fellowship meal. (laughs) In just a few moments, we're going to share food together. And we're going to share fellowship together. Why? Because we have God's love in our midst. The early church, they actually had things called love feasts, where they would enjoy God's fellowship with the saints. And I don't really like that term. It's not one I would ever want for us to replicate today, because it has a slightly more icky idea for uh, our current era, era. But the concept of our fellowship meal is designed that we might love God and love the saints. Let's pray. Lord, give us help even now, we pray, that our love would not be so much in concept, but be according to your character, according to your plan, and according to your pattern. Thank you for Jesus, who has died for us, was raised for us. Amen.